Welcome to Oppenheimer's Let's Talk Future podcast. In this format, we bring you timely and relevant conversations with thought leaders and industry experts. Join us as we explore new ways of thinking about the markets, investing, business, new technologies, and life in general. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to click on the subscribe button. Now here's Jane Ross, Managing Director of Investment Banking with Robin Graham, also a Managing Director of Investment Banking and Head of the Technology Sector. Welcome to today's episode entitled The Great Digital Workaround, a conversation with Robin Graham. We're all well aware that COVID-19 has created enormous challenges for our society, our economy, businesses, individuals, and the old cliche that with trouble comes opportunity seems true here too, as COVID has illuminated big opportunities for some disruptors and innovators in technology who are creating solutions to help meet some of these challenges. In other words, the great digital workaround. So in today's conversation, we're going to take a look at Oppenheimer's technology investment banking practice. We'll talk about themes that investors are seeking to understand in in technology. We'll talk about some digital transformations that are happening real time. And as always, we'll end by taking a look ahead. To accomplish all of this, we have Robin Graham with us. Robin is the Managing Director and Head of Technology Investment Banking at Oppenheimer. Welcome, Robin. Thanks, Jane. Great to be here. Robin, let's start with you for a moment. You have a somewhat unusual background, international, bicoastal, multicultural. How do these things help inform your approach to investment banking in the technology sector? Uh, That's a good question. So um, I I would say we've built out our team here in technology investment banking to kind of reflect the view that the tech industry is now truly a global phenomenon and, uh, and becoming more so at an exponential rate especially with COVID-19 now teaching us all how to live, learn, and work remotely, um, and certainly differently than we were six months ago. Um, It it sort of plays to my personal background. I grew up in Southern Africa where my mother worked in healthcare. My father was a civil engineer building public infrastructure uh, in, in that continent before he transitioned to marketing and moved our family to London. And en route, we lived in Sweden for a short time with my mother's side of the family and, and I became a Swedish citizen. Um, I, uh, my Swedish is terrible, so please don't ask me to speak in Swedish. <laughs> Although I did vote in the recent elections there, which was, uh, which was a nice feeling. I'm a permanent resident here in the US. I've lived in New York and Boston, as well as uh, San Francisco and the Bay Area, where I now live with my wife and, and then two almost teenage kids. Um, in terms of professional experience, you know, I've been I've been pretty much obsessed with advising and raising growth capital for tech businesses for my whole career, almost 25 years now. Um, it's always been the most exciting and dynamic industry to me. Um, I started with semiconductor and component level companies, um, banking them out of New York, and figured out I really need to be on the West Coast where those companies are resident to work with them more closely. Um, work through the contract manufacturing and EDA software industry to system level companies and gradually kind of evolved with Silicon Valley as it, as it started to uh, uh, develop uh, infrastructure and then application software companies in the internet era. Um, so I'm now 
personally spent the last 10 plus years focused in software and internet sectors most deeply. And in that time, in that time, the tech industry is also globalized substantially. Um, so I have a, a, a wonderful global point of view on, on that now. So perhaps reflective of that, while our overriding focus at Oppenheimer's has always been to nurture and build a team of industry bankers who are deeply knowledgeable in their specific tech sectors. It, it happens that the team that I've built is also necessarily multinational, multicultural, and diverse. And my background gives me an opportunity to kind of connect with them uniquely. Well, let's let's turn to that because you bring up a good point there. I'd like to spend a moment on Oppenheimer's technology investment banking franchise. It's certainly grown under your tenure, and I thought it would be helpful if you could give us a snapshot of what that business looks like. Absolutely. So um, we presently have about 35 technology investment bankers uh, operating from uh, the startup nation of Israel, Tel Aviv, to uh, Germany and London. Um, my team's in uh, in force in Boston, New York City, of course, uh, Denver, San Francisco, and Palo Alto, California. Um, but it all starts with our research team. So we have at Oppenheimer, we have senior research analysts covering 11 different subsectors of the technology landscape. And what we've done is built out the banking team and then, and then hired ma hired managing directors and banking teams against that footprint. Each of those teams or individuals has very deep sector expertise and they're matched up with their counterparts in research to identify and build relationships with sort of the next emerging market leaders in those sectors of technology. Um, as it happens, we've actually, as we built that team, they're also culturally reflective of an increasingly global client base. So uh, just for fun, I mean, I, I sent a note around to my bankers this morning asking them what languages they speak because uh, I don't think we'd ever hold the whole group. And it turns out we have tech bankers in Palo Alto and San Francisco who are native speakers of Mandarin, Korean, and Hindi, um, who have Spanish, French, German, Norwegian, Danish, Hebrew, and Bulgarian as a first language. And we've even got a managing director in Denver who speaks fluent Romanian. Um, there you go. This, this is just a team in the U.S. That's before we get to Israel or London or Munich-based tech bankers who each speak multiple languages and will cross-border all the time. So it's a pretty diverse group. If, if you took a photo of our team, we'd look a lot like one of those old Benetton ads, maybe without the, the blindingly colorful clothing. Um, but I'm very proud of the team we've built, its diversity, uh, their expertise. Our, our tech franchise is increasingly global in our operations and with a very strong U.S. footprint that's weighted in Silicon Valley. It's uh, it's a very matrix team that's extremely effective in serving a broad base of clients across the tech industry. And it's it's interesting. I've I've noticed that um, particularly from the research side, the uh, silos that we operate in, you know, next generation software, internet, and cloud services, um, all align well with today's work at home, learn at home requirements in the age of COVID. So it just seems like a nice confluence in terms of a matching of skills. Well, let's discuss, you just wrapped up Oppenheimer's 23rd annual technology, internet and communications conference. Of course, this year it was virtual. Um, how did it all come off? It was fantastic from our point of view. Um, 145 tech companies presenting over two days. We typically do it at the Four Seasons in Boston. Obviously with COVID, we had to switch gears and and port this very large conference over to uh, a virtual forum. But that virtual forum was, was great, uh, very well received. We had 27 
hundred one-on-one meetings between management teams um, and institutional investors in two days, all online, all of the video conference, and and our investor attendance more than doubled. And the feedback from companies and investors has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, I think once you took that sort of geographic travel barrier down, um, investors who previously would have found that point a point of friction or had conflicts with other physical locations were able to join. And so we had tremendous attendance and a lot of my bankers had to actually step back from our banking one-on-ones and give those slots to our investor clients because there was such strong demand to meet with the companies that we had presenting. You know, our topic is the digital workaround and a lot of these things that we viewed were impediments have ended up being benefits to to forums. So it's interesting. Um, Can you delve a little bit into um, the content of the conference? The investors were, you know, at our conference to, to basically address three key things. And I would say the first was um, how were public companies faring after COVID impacted the second quarter of 2020? Um, who were the beneficiaries? To what degree? What's the outlook? I think that's really fundamentally your question. Um, with respect to the first, that theme, our investor conference was right at the end of, of, of the tail end of Q2 earnings in the second week of August. So it's extremely well-timed as a conference for investors to kind of get together with management teams and check in on their business outlook, having just had all those companies report. Um, the second uh, thing that investors were at the conference for was um, to get a, a sense of which, as you pointed out, which digital transformations are being accelerated and to what degree, um, you know, which companies migrate to the cloud, uh, where is online education benefiting, which companies are benefiting from that, um, how is workplace collaboration happening differently and which software platforms are evolving to serve that need? Um, you know, how do we, how do we enable more e-commerce, particularly for SMBs? Uh, all the tools for, for that digital transformation, uh, a lot of the companies that provide those tools right now conference presenting and, and so investors got an opportunity to sit down with them and talk about how they see the future after the first full COVID quarter. Um, and then the third thing is, you know, which is present at all our conferences, is you know, which private technology companies are emerging to create massive shareholder value over the next few years and disrupt incumbents and their entire industries in the process. And we always have a very strong cohort of private companies that attend um, our conference, and it's a chance for uh, them to run their their market opportunity, their product market fit, their their um, outlook for um, their business uh, by public institutional investors and give the public institutional investors a chance to get introduced to those companies before they come public. And so our conference has always been a good forum for that and uh, and do it remotely this year was, was successful. Okay, Robin. Well, let's delve into the content of the conference a little bit more closely. Maybe you could give us a sense of some of the business models or trends that are doing well in this current environment. Absolutely, Jane. So, in um, it, it, you know, our conference came at the end, as I said, of, of Q2 earnings season. So that quarter bore the full brunt of a pandemic, which essentially forced work from home and Zoom school into our lives and and our technology companies and clients are kind of at the forefront of creating solutions to those issues for consumers and businesses alike. Um, not only was the conference an incredible <clears throat> opportunity for investors to reconnect with management teams on how they're responding to the challenges of the COVID and the COVID environment, um, but a lot of you know a lot of changes obviously being driven across the economy 
um, the impact of COVID has been destructive in the case of brick and mortar retail, travel industry to call two out, but it has also been an accelerant to the adoption of, of better business models across other sections of the economy. So um, accelerating uh, e-commerce and mobile commerce, uh, driving and accelerating the adoption of software, such as collaboration tools that distribute and manage work streams across enterprises. Um, it's changed how we deliver services through digital channels. So to come back to the title of the podcast, which was the great digital workaround, it's important, I think, to recognize that these changes in behavior aren't necessarily temporary. Um, they've pulled in things that were ultimately going to happen in our view anyway. And in the tech investment banking team, we spent a lot of time looking out into the future with our research counterparts and, and placing bets on how these uh, industries are going to evolve. Um, so consumers and students and employees for the first time in a while are radically changing their behavior in response to restrictions that were placed on us by the pandemic. And businesses are having to adapt and find uh, those consumers and students and employees where they are, which is at home and online, taking deliveries, consuming services remotely. Um, it, it, most exciting to me is there are two industries in particular that have always been very slow to adopt technology, you know, largely due to regulatory and structural friction, but also basically inertia. And one of the healthcare industry where um, technology is reshaping how healthcare is advanced, offered, discovered, distributed, um, administered, and education, which was moving online, but is now undergoing massive structural change to serve a you know, very present need to educate students remotely. Um, I think when you spoke to Fred Larson, um, who runs our transportation logistics team, you focused, you touched on how tech is reshaping transportation logistics. And I thought that was really fascinating, you know, that we've optimized the global supply chain for cost reduction, but now COVID is forcing that industry to reprioritize and also build in redundancy and resilience into that global supply chain. And a lot of that is being affected by technology and the technology businesses we work with. Uh, when we talked with Brian Nagel before the release of a lot of second quarter results, he was emphasizing the importance of e-commerce in retail and certainly those those comments of his were spot on and borne out in second quarter reports. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the largest sectors of the U.S. economy are in one phase or another moving online. You know, real estate's moving online. Um, even if you want to know what the future of food looks like, you have to understand how agricultural technology is reshaping the manufacturing distribution of food um, from you know, tech-enabled farming to software that optimizes yields. Um, and so investors come to our investor conference and rely on us and our research counterparts to kind of get a glimpse of the future and, and, and to, to, to decide where they're going to allocate growth capital to the companies that are affecting those huge changes. Well, we all know that more tech companies are opting to stay private longer. And I know that this has been a real opportunity or focus for you to try to create investment access for investors to private companies. Um, can you talk about Oppenheimer's private market opportunities platform and how we go about doing that? Absolutely, Jane. That was, I mean, that's almost the subject for an entire podcast in and of itself. <laughs> I can give you a high level. So I'll just describe the goal, which is really to democratize access to pre-IPO shareholder wealth creation. So all of those private companies that I talked about that come to our conference to meet institutional investors for the first time, 
generally they're meeting companies or institutional investors that are going to um, anchor their IPOs as they come into the public markets and as we underwrite those IPOs. And, um, you know, and increasingly retail investors were not getting an opportunity to get much allocations in those, in those IPOs. And, and at Oppenheimer, we have a, a $90 billion pool of assets under administration through our, um, our retail networking channel. Um, who really might who really like to participate. So, you know, as my bankers are out building relationships with some of the world's most disruptive high growth private tech companies in the sectors they cover, they're also extremely well positioned to identify which of those emerging market leaders uh, require capital and when. And, um, and so we've been able to put our institutional investor clients in pre IPO uh, to private rounds before those companies come public. And we thought, why not do the same? with um, uh, our retail clients. We pull capital into special purpose investment vehicles and, and invest alongside that smart capital in companies that we think are clear winners in the private markets. When we're doing our jobs right in banking, we introduce those kinds of market leaders to our best institutional clients all the time through our private capital markets team. And, uh, and now with the PMO product, we're able to package up investment vehicles to invest our retail client capital into those companies as well. So it's very exciting. We put about $100 million of our retail client capital to work in that, in that form over the last 18 to 24 months. And we're looking forward to some strong exits in the market ahead. Great. Well, see, you were able to do that in a succinct fashion. Um, let's let's stay on the um, on the topic of capital and access to capital. I think it's been a bit of a surprise this year how receptive the market has been to companies raising capital. Um, the Nasdaq 100 is at a high. It's up more than 50 percent in the last five months. SPACs are pricing and setting records in size. Um, so, can you talk a moment about your outlook for capital markets in technology? Um, you, mean, you mean let's talk future, Jane? Let's talk future. <laughs> talk future. Um, I love the topic. As a you know, I'll go back to my days as a consumer internet banking. I, I learned a really critical lesson, which is ultimately it all comes down to serving the consumer's preferences, no matter what business you're in, whether it's B two C or B two B two C. Understanding the end consumer's preference drives the entire ecosystem. So very, too, very few tech entrepreneurs have been able to build businesses actually change consumer behavior. Um, but the most disruptive thing to happen to the tech sector, and by extension, almost every sector of our economy lately is the COVID-19 pandemic. And, and why is that? Well, it's because it's changed and, and is changing consumer behavior out of necessity and, uh, and necessity and the need for health-based risk management. So it's hard to underestimate or understate the impact this is having on everything from manufacturing to transportation logistics to you know, the adoption of technology solutions, anything that affects transitions and verticals that were extremely resistant to technology adoption, particularly verticals like industry verticals like education and healthcare. Um, you know, so like, like any suddenly forced external transition, the, transition period can be painful and scary, but the implications are extremely exciting. If we just think about what this is doing for education, you know, it comes at a time, the pandemic comes at a time when we now have the tools to produce world-class educational content from the world's best educators, hosted in the cloud, distributed globally at a minuscule marginal cost. And we've got the mobile network infrastructure that's now migrating to 5G networks furiously building out to support the need for bandwidth to facilitate that. And so 
education moves online, you know, talent becomes accessible globally, employees can work remotely from wherever they choose, so our quality of life improves for hundreds of millions of people. Um, healthcare integrates telemedicine, for example. Uh, our environment becomes healthier as business travel is reduced and, and the cars in the supply chain go electric. Uh, cars become more autonomous. Um, we've got to play there as well. Um, software migrates to the cloud, and as it does, you know, security becomes even more critical and important. So a lot of security software companies that we've taken public over the last two years out of my team have, um, have, have been allocated large swaths of capital to go solve those problems. And those problems are increasing as we, we, we conduct our business and, uh, and education online increasingly. So the data that's captured and analyzed you know, drives increasingly efficient allocation of resources and the consumer is essentially always on. And you know, the only way to reach that consumer or that student or that employee is through digital channel. Digital marketing becomes you know, the fastest and most efficient way to reach consumers. So software and data platforms who presented our conference recently, um, who help companies and enterprises make data-driven decisions and improve a customer experience. Even the back office software um, in the enterprise, think um, the CFO's finance department, for example, it's reinvented by software and uh, increasingly that's getting accelerated by the pandemic environment we're in. Our, um, our software team, which is a top ranked research team actually has a published team around this and uh, so that they can, they can provide more insight in that than I can in this short forum. Um, but in summary, I mean, there's no more exciting time to be a, a technology investment banker and be in a position to allocate our clients capital so the business is leading all these kinds of transformations. And, um, and my team of bankers each have deep expertise in the sectors and they're exceptionally good at this. Um, I think Oppenheimer itself has never been more effective in supporting our client companies in the tech sector than right now. And I don't think we could be more excited about the future. Perfect. Well, that is a lovely place to end. I think that, um, You've really done a pretty formidable job of growing Oppenheimer's presence in this space, and you've certainly contributed to the great digital workaround. So we appreciate your time today. Thanks, Jane. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And this is Jane Ross signing off until the next episode of Let's Talk Future.